Earlier this year, a uh, New York Times column, columnist by the name of David Brooks wrote a very insightful column in which he observed that our culture here in America is awash in talk about happiness. And in fact, in one three-month period in 2013, he points out that more than a thousand books were released on Amazon on the subject of happiness. But he says this. It's a little lengthy, but let me, let me read this to you. He says, notice this phenomenon. When people remember the past, they don't only talk about happiness. It is often the ordeals that seem most significant. People shoot for happiness, but they feel formed through suffering. He goes on and he says, happiness wants, to, happiness wants you to think about maximizing your benefits. But the big thing suffering does is it takes you outside of precisely that logic that the happiness mentality encourages. Suffering gives people a more accurate sense of their own limitations, what they can control and what they cannot control. When people are thrust down into these deeper zones, they are forced to confront the fact that they can't determine what goes on there. People in this circumstance often have the sense that they are swept up in some larger providence. It's a fascinating insight uh, that he makes, and it's one that the Bible actually confirms that there is a that there is a kind of, that there is a piece that we can learn from suffering that can be learned in no other way. There is a depth that comes from suffering that cannot come in any other way. And we find the Israelites again this morning in the passage that we're going to look at. We find them in the desert again, and just as I mentioned last week, I want to say this again: that the desert is not only a literal place. But it's also used as a metaphor for suffering. And so through their literal desert experience, we can learn a great deal about how to handle our own metaphorical desert experiences. And if you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to Exodus chapter 17 in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to put the verses up on the screen. But if you have a Bible in whatever form it comes in, I'd like for you to turn uh, with me in it to Exodus chapter 17. And I want to welcome those who are listening to our podcast this morning or who are listening by virtue of our app. We're in this series that we've been in for some time. It's called The Gospel in the last place that you would ever expect to find it. And I think one of the places that most people would agree that you would never expect to find the refreshment of the gospel would be in the desert uh, of our suffering. But I think you might be surprised this morning at what we find in the desert of Israel's suffering. I want to pick up the reading at verse 1. Chapter 17, the book of Exodus. And let's pick up the the reading at verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses, and they said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? And then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. You guys recognize this? Does this sound, any of this sound familiar to those of you who were with us last week? 
It's, an almost, it's almost an exact repeat of what happened last week with respect to hunger. The, the Israelites were hungry and they were convinced that they were going to starve to death. And they began to think delusionally about their time in slavery back in Egypt. Like it was a great time. Like it was a great, wonderful time when really, in reality, they actually hated it. So it's very almost, almost exactly the same situation, except that now it's not hunger that they're dealing with, it's thirst. And this is, of course, worse because the body uh, can last a lot longer without food than it can last without water. And so the issue now is much more urgent, and they are desperate, and they are furious. And I want you to notice something here. There is a word that shows up twice in verse 2 that's, that's really a very interesting word. It's, it's a word that's translated uh, quarreled. Did you see it a couple of times? It, says, it said that they quarreled with Moses, and then Moses asked, why, did you quor- why are you quarreling uh, with me? And I'm going to explain the significance of that word in just a moment. But I also want you to look down at the end of verse 4, where Moses says, look, these people are so mad at me, that I'm about to get stoned. And, and of course, he's talking about the old-fashioned way of getting stoned, not the newer way of getting stoned. Uh, and this is very significant. Uh, but the English text doesn't really convey, it doesn't really help you understand the significance of it. Um, the Hebrew word that is translated there, quarreled, means to bring a charge against someone, to institute legal proceedings against someone, to bring someone uh, to justice before the bar of justice. In other words, what these people are doing is that they are formally charging Moses with criminal negligence for bringing them out to the desert with no water. And when Moses says that they're ready to stone me, what he's, what he's saying is that they've already held a kangaroo court of sorts and they found him guilty and that they are ready to execute him because uh, the way that you executed someone in Israel in that time, in that culture, was through stoning. That was capital punishment. That, that, that was how you executed a person. And so he's saying, they've already tried me, they found me guilty, and they're ready to kill me. And Moses says, Lord, what am I going to do with these people? In other words, I'm fed up with them. Every time there's a problem, they panic and they, they turn on me. He's exasperated. And can you blame him? Because this pattern, you're going to see, if you read through the book of Exodus, and if you read through the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy, this pattern keeps repeating itself over and over and over throughout these books and throughout this desert experience that they're in. Here's the pattern. They get in danger. They panic. Pharmacies in the desert experience a sudden surge in Xanax prescriptions, and then they want to kill Moses. That's the way it goes. It just, this pattern just keeps getting going this way over and over and over again. Can you blame him for being completely fed up with this? All through Exodus, all through Exodus, you find yourself asking about these people. Why are these people not more chill about this? Why, why aren't they more at peace, given everything that God has done for them? Like how he, how he rescued them from Egypt miraculously, and, and all the plagues that he brought on Egypt just to get these people out, and, and the crossing of the Red Sea, and how miraculous that was, and, and then like the providing of the manna, like they were hungry in the desert, there wasn't any food, and God provides manna, it just falls from the sky for them. Why aren't they more relaxed about this whole situation that they find themselves in? Why are they so worked up about it? Why is someone not saying, look, God has done so much for us. 
He hasn't forgotten we need water. I mean, like when we were hungry, he didn't forget that we needed to eat. So he provided bread. He hasn't forgotten that we need water. It's going to be fascinating. Let's watch. Let's look anticip- uh, with, with a sense of anticipation at how God is going to provide water for us. I mean, why are they so uptight and panicked? Why don't they just, why isn't anybody speaking to them and saying, you know, guys, let's all chill out, man. Let's just relax. God's going to do, why? Why aren't they that? They, they don't do that. Why? And the answer the answer, of course, is that, and I think you can relate to this, all their years in slavery under a brutal taskmaster, all those years have distorted their perspective. That's what slavery does. Slavery distorts perspective. When you're enslaved to someone or something, It's a very stressful, very anxious way to live. Like, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are, I mean, all of you are, all of us, I include myself in this, we're all enslaved to something in our lives. And um, there's a nagging, it's a very stressful way to live because there's a nagging sense of fear that never goes away when you're enslaved to someone or something. Because you have to always be on alert just to survive. You have to control things. You have to get your next fix because no one else is going to get that fix for you. You have to get the next drink because if you don't, you might fall apart in a meeting. Or in case of man-made religion, you have to make sure that you've done enough, been good enough, prayed enough, read your Bible enough. All sorts of things that people are enslaved to. No one you can trust but yourself when you're enslaved to someone. It's exactly what's happening to these people here in the desert. They're afraid that they can't get water, and they're afraid that they were wrong to trust Moses because you can't trust anybody when you've been a slave for that long. You remember what we said last week? Remember how we said it? We said, we said you can get people out of slavery in an instant, but it takes a process to get the slavery out of people. Do you remember us talking about this last week? See, the, the moment that Israel crossed the Red Sea, they were free of the brutal slavery that they had experienced in Egypt. Because God had, God had decisively moved heaven and earth to free these people. And, and, and in doing so, he promised to take care of them like a, like a father who loves his child. He, he, was, he wasn't going to be a brutal taskmaster to these people. He, he would be like a father who loves a child. And the moment they crossed the Red Sea, they were his. They were no longer in, in slavery. But we said this last week, that even though, the, even though they, they're free in principle, they're not free in practice at this moment. They still think like slaves. Like all of us, we're all in that position. We're, many of us have believed upon Jesus Christ and we're free in principle, but in practice, we're still enslaved to a lot of different things, aren't we? And it could be anything from religion. It could be... Uh, we, we're enslaved to drugs or alcohol. We could be enslaved to money. We could be enslaved to all sorts of things. We talked about this a few weeks ago. There could be good things, exercise. You could be, an ensla- you could be enslaved to exercise. 
You could be enslaved to a specific person, maybe someone that you're, that you're dating right now, and you're like, oh, I've got to have that person. You could be enslaved. Even though you've been freed by Christ from the brutal taskmaster under whom you were enslaved for so long, Satan, you now have been freed. And yet, even though you're free in principle, in practice, you still find yourself enslaved to things. That's, that's where Israel is. They still think like slaves. Like, they think like people who can't trust anyone but themselves. And that's what this desert experience is about. God wants to teach these people that they no longer have to live like slaves. As if everything, as if it's, as if everything about their lives is on them. He wants them to just know that they can relax. That he will handle this. That He will handle everything else that comes up in their future. Every need that they have, he will take care of. But until they felt last week hunger and this week thirst, they couldn't learn this this powerful lesson that God wanted to teach them, that he can handle their needs and that he wants to handle their needs. And if you want to know Like if you find yourself this morning in some kind of desert experience, you need to to know that the same principle that applies to Israel applies to you. And, and, And maybe we could just say it this way, that whatever desert you find yourself in right now, no matter how hard it is, no matter how barren it seems, just know this, that in the midst of your desert, You can be at peace because God is both willing and able to take care of you in the midst of your desert right now. He's both willing, like he wants to take care of you, like a father takes care of a child. He wants to take care of you. But it's not just that he's willing. It's also that he's able, and we're going to see that in this text. He's able to take care of you. Whatever it is that concerns you, he's able. And so be at peace. Do me a favor, everybody, just do this. Just take a deep breath and then blow it out. Be at peace. Be at peace. God is willing and able to take care of you this morning. How good would that feel if you had the confidence to know that whatever circumstances came your way, that God would be willing and able to help you and to care for you, that you don't have to figure it out yourself. You don't have to hammer it out on your own. You don't have to manipulate everybody around you. You don't have to control everything. What kind of peace would that bring to your soul if you could work that truth in principle into your practice to know that you could be at peace because God is willing and he's able. Be at peace. Be at peace. I want to shift your attention to God's answer to Moses' question about what he's going to do with these people. And I want you to, I want to just, let's read from verse 5. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you 
some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? One commentator summarizes this whole narrative. He says this, He says, the whole point of and reason for this narrative is God's provision for his people of water from the unlikeliest of all spots in that region, the top of a rock. In other words, if you're looking for water in a desert, one place that you wouldn't look would be the top of a rock. And yet there it is. There's water gushing out of this rock. And I would just remind you again, uh, the the same thing that I said just a moment ago. Just I I want to make this point. Perhaps you find yourself in a desert this morning and it feels dry and it feels barren and you can't imagine anything good in this desert that you're in right now. Again, be at peace. Be at peace. Because get this, from this story from the rock, get this. God's grace tends to flow from the unlikeliest places. God's grace tends to flow from the unlikeliest places. The whole idea, you see, of the desert is that in the desert, all other sources of water dry up. And and you're going to have to get water from God if you're going to get water. And, And here, let me... Okay, so here's how the metaphor goes, okay? I want you to think about it uh, in metaphorical terms like this. Until you get into a troubled place, a desert, you're drawing water, like significance and peace, those kinds of things. You're drawing those from other things. Like you're drawing them from your resume or your happy little family or your bank account or your career or whatever you're getting your significance and sense of peace and meaning and security in life from. You're drawing, you're drawing water from all of those other places. You're getting water from something else. But here's the thing, guys. Any other place that you're getting meaning and peace and significance and uh, security from other than God is not only a shallow water source, but it's always going to dry up at some point. It will always dry up. It always will. And so what that makes you is vulnerable. You're more vulnerable than you know. And so what that, what that means is that you're subject to circumstances. Only when you get in the desert, when all of the other water sources dry up, it's only then that you finally learn for the first time to draw on God. Uh, Some of you who are in our 12 Steps to Spiritual Growth class, uh, you'll recognize this quote from our book um, by Richard Rohr called Breathing Underwater. He says, Until and unless there is a person, situation, event, idea, conflict, or relationship that you cannot manage, you will never find a true manager. So God makes sure that several things will come your way that you cannot manage on your own. In other words, deserts. Deserts. That he makes sure will come your way. It's not that he causes them. It's just that he uses them. 
so that you learn for the first time to draw on him, not on all of this other stuff that you've been drawing on all of your life. This is the reason why we said last week, and I'll say it again, that it's not until you get into a place where God is all you have that you realize that all along God was all you ever needed. You never know that God is all you need until you get to a place where you find that God is all you have. You see, the reason that it's possible, the reason what David Brooks was saying earlier when we were Uh, when I was reading to you his quote, the reason that it's possible to come out of affliction and become happier people and stronger people and more peaceful people and humbler people and wiser and, and greater people is because it's in the desert that you find the water of God. Frankly, only in the desert can you find the water of God. And so be at peace in this desert that you find yourself in, not only is God willing and able to deal with all of your needs in that, but you need to know that his grace tends to flow from the unlikeliest places. And then finally, I just I want to give you this. I want to go back to something that Moses says in, in verse 2. I want you to notice that he says in uh, chapter 17, verse 2, he says, So they quarreled with Moses, and they said, Give us water to drink. And Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Now, he makes, Moses makes a very interesting point here. Even though these people are taking out their anger at this moment on Moses because they see him as the instrumental cause of their predicament, the one that they're really putting on trial here is God himself. He is the ultimate cause. Moses is the instrumental cause. But God, they're saying, they they believe that he is the ultimate cause as far as they are concerned. And that's why Moses says, you know, you're quarreling with me, but you're putting the Lord to the test, Right? And then I want you to look down at the end of verse 7 again. And I want you to, want you to notice what Moses says in verse 7. Excuse me, what the people say to Moses in verse 7. They say, is the Lord among us or not? And I will bet you that you have probably heard people ask that question in uh, different terms, but it's the same question. And it goes some, something like this. When, when people are suffering or when national suffering occurs, or when tragedy occurs of some kind, they ask this question, where was God, for instance, on 9-11? Where was God on 9-11? Where was God when I was raped? Where was God when my baby died? Where was God? And, you know, these, these are all, these questions, they're all variations on the same theme. What they're asking is, is the Lord among us or not? Is he here? If he is, how could he possibly allow this kind of thing? When suffering and tragedy occurs, we want to put God on trial. Do we not? Don't we want to put him on trial? We want him to have to pay for injustice. And and if you look at what they wanted to do to Moses, you'll see that as God's representative, really what they were... They, what, they, what they were doing to Moses is what they wanted to do to God. They wanted to execute him. They have, they have found him guilty, and they want to kill him. 
And so it's really God that is on trial here. Not so much Moses, although Moses is the person. They, they, they want to put God on trial. They, they want justice. They want God to stand trial. It's like, where are you? Why have you allowed us, allowed us to suffer like this? Why have you allowed us to experience this desert? Which is a fascinating question, really. Because, I, and I mentioned this last week, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and you look at the story of creation, you would notice God never created deserts. And if you read about what he wants to do at the end, when he recreates the heavens and the earth, there are going to be no deserts there. Deserts came as a result of humanity's sin in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. It wasn't God. He didn't create deserts. It was a result of man's sin. We caused the deserts. But we blame him for them. And so they're saying, we're putting you on trial, God. Yes, you. You should stand trial. You should be sentenced because you're guilty. You're either impotent or you're evil for allowing this to happen. And it's actually blasphemous, if you think about it, that sinful man would dare accuse a holy God. Now, let me ask you something. How would you expect a holy God to respond to sinful man blasphemously accusing him? How would you expect him to respond? Watch this. God says something fascinating to Moses, and I bet you you didn't catch it the first time around. It's in verse 5. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. And he said, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and the water will come out of it for the people uh, to drink. Here's what God is doing. When he says, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, what he's saying is, I will stand trial. I will allow you to try me. And when he says to Moses, take the staff and strike the rock, the staff that Moses held was a symbol of justice. It was, it was the same staff that Moses used when God brought the plagues on, Eve, on Egypt for their inhumane treatment of the Jews. It was a staff of justice. And so the astounding thing about this passage is that God, in his, this, this holy God, being accused by these blasphemous sinners, he does the unthinkable. In his infinite mercy, he goes beyond what these people ever deserved. And he takes the blow of judgment that they deserved they're the ones that deserve to be struck. But he takes the blow of judgment. And from that blow, the people drink. Now watch this, because I know that there's a little link here that you're missing, that you've got to get. When I say that he took the blow, there's a little link here. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is speaking of this passage, this very passage. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 3. Go ahead and put it up on the screen if you would, John. 
He's talking about this passage, and he says, They all ate the same spiritual food, that was the manna, and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. You understand now? That when God said, I will stand there before you, and you, you strike the rock, what he was pointing to was Jesus. You see, on the cross, there was a moment when Jesus said, He said, I thirst. He's hanging on the cross and he says, I thirst. And you know what's going on in that moment? Don't you think that Moses wanted God to just leave these ungrateful people right where they were and just let them die of thirst? Don't you think that's what Moses wanted? I think that's exactly what he wanted. But God didn't do it. Why not? Why not? Because of his profound love for these people. And the reason that he could respond with love to them without violating his justice, the reason he could do it was because on the cross, Jesus would take the blow of judgment for their sin. He would take the cosmic thirst so that they could drink and so that we could drink. So Jesus says in John chapter 7, he says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Do you see the point? Jesus is the rock in the desert. It's pointing to Jesus. And from his death, rivers of grace flow to everyone who drinks of him. This is the gospel, folks, in the last place that you would ever expect to find it. In the desert, in the book of Exodus. And here's how I want to close. Some of you here this morning need to drink from the rock that is Jesus for the first time. Like, here's another way to say it. You need to believe in Jesus. You need to trust in him. The thirst that you feel, like, and here's the way that thirst manifests itself often, is like, it feels like life is meaningless. It feels like life is empty. And, And it feels like that your life is chaos. And that thirst comes from your sin. Because in your sin, what you have done throughout your life is is that you have taken God's place as the master and Lord of your life. What you need to know is that Jesus, well, he kind of paralleled what you did. You, You took God's place. And in Jesus, God takes your place on the cross. And he took the punishment for your sin, the sin that you deserve, just like the people in Israel deserved for their blasphemy against the holy God. God took the punishment that you deserved. He took it upon himself in Jesus. And he died for your sins. And if we can just stick with the metaphor, that's the sweetest water that you are ever going to drink. And some of you this morning just need to drink from it for the very first time. 
But I know also that there are a lot of you here who have believed in Jesus. You have tasted of the river of life. But you find yourself in a desert right now and you are anxious and you are panicked and you are worried and your mind is like, it's just chaos and it's just a frenzy right now. And what I want to say to you is that you need to keep drinking from the river of life. Let the peace of Jesus dispel all the chaos of your mind right now. Let the peace of Jesus be your sanity in this desert that you find yourself in right now. Drink again from the gospel. The big mistake, I've said this before, the big mistake people, think, uh, people make when it comes to Christianity and the gospel is that they think the gospel was only something that, that sort of, it was significant. The gospel was only significant at the moment that they received Christ. But I'm telling you, you've got to keep drinking of the gospel. The gospel is significant every moment of your life. The gospel tells us that God is willing and, and able to meet your needs because of what Jesus did on the cross. That his, that his grace flows from the rockiest places in life. And all of that because Jesus was struck on your behalf. He was thirsty so that you would never have to be thirsty again. Some of you who find yourselves in deserts this morning, you need to go back And you need to drink again of the gospel. Not that you have to be saved again. That's not my point. The point is you need to drink from the sweet waters of the gospel. And experience the peace of Christ. Let the principle that you are free, let it work out now in this desert. You can stop thinking like a slave and start thinking like a person who's sla- who's, who, who is saved from slavery and who has a father who will take care of them even in the worst places. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, we are humbled when we come across a passage of scripture like this that speaks to us again about your willingness to take the punishment that we deserved. Or for those that are here this morning that have never believed, perhaps they have thought to themselves in the past that they're just too bad, that, that you wouldn't care about them. Or maybe, on the other hand, they've thought that they're just very good. And that is a result of their goodness that you, that they don't need what Jesus did on the cross for them. And Lord, we, I pray that in this moment that you would convict them that there is, on the one hand, there is no person who's too far, who's too far gone for you. Nobody. But on the other hand, there is no amount of goodness that could ever measure up to your holiness. And so at the cross, everyone meets. And Lord, would you bring them to a place where they would drink from the river of life this morning. 
then Lord for those who who have tasted of that of that water but are in deserts this morning I pray that you would give them this morning a sense of peace that you would be their sanity that you would be their clarity that they would that they would experience that as a result of of a passage of scripture like this we pray that your spirit would do that in them this morning Lord, in all things, we want to exalt you. We thank you for the consistency of the message of the Bible that is always about you, Lord Jesus. And we affirm this morning your supremacy, but we also affirm the beauty of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that, we find peace, even in the middle of our deserts. It's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray this morning. Amen.